Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to another episode of Education Matters presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm your host, Keith Poston. As you know, each show we focus on a central topic. This week, we're looking at how our state is recovering from Hurricane Matthew's historic flooding, particularly our public schools in eastern North Carolina. We go to Robinson County to see firsthand and talk to school leaders there. Before we tackle each show's main topic, we open with a segment we call Edlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. Election 2016 is over. Defying all pollsters and prognosticators, Donald Trump was elected the 45th President of the United States, defeating former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Here in North Carolina, Attorney General Roy Cooper led Governor Pat McCrory by a small margin as election night ended, and he would make history as the first candidate to unseat a sitting governor. That race is headed for a canvas and possible recount, so final certified results are likely a week or more away. Republicans did maintain their supermajorities in both the North Carolina House and North Carolina Senate. Next week here on Education Matters, we're going to take a closer look at what these results may mean for education policy in North Carolina. Education may not have been a focal point in the presidential election, but some states had major education issues on the ballot on Tuesday. In Massachusetts, voters rejected an expansion of charter schools in the state. The ballot measure known as Question 2 would have allowed up to 12 new charters each year or increased enrollment at existing ones. In Georgia, voters rejected the creation of a statewide opportunity school district. This new district would have been run by the state with authority to take schools deemed to be chronically failing from the control of local school boards. The, model, the plan was modeled after similar programs in Louisiana and Tennessee. The North Carolina General Assembly created its own version last session, the Achievement School District. That is slated to take over management of some elementary schools here in North Carolina. In Oklahoma, voters rejected a 1% sales tax increase, which would have provided for $5,000 across the board raises for all teachers and increased funding for all levels of education. Earlier this year, the U.S. Department of Education released data collected from public schools nationally focused on equity and opportunity gaps. One of the findings was that black preschool children are three times more likely to receive suspensions as white preschool children. Now, a brand new study from the Yale Child Study Center may shed some light on this. It explored how implicit bias, that is subconscious stereotypes and attitudes that frankly we all have, can play out in education, even as early as preschool. Their study found that both black and white preschool teachers tend to observe black students more closely, especially black boys, when challenging behaviors are expected. The study goes on to talk about ways to better understand implicit bias and address these disparities. Finally, a new study found that teachers perceive boys' math ability is higher than girls starting as early as kindergarten, regardless of the student's level of achievement. This is according to researchers from New York University, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and Westchester University. This study was published just last week. This perception at such an early age could affect girls' confidence and aptitude for math and prevent them from pursuing future STEM opportunities. A recent nationwide survey found that teachers are more likely to tell boys that they would be good at computer science. 39% of boys heard that versus 26% of girls. We should know by now girls can do anything boys can do, maybe better. Just ask my daughter. Now you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click Education Matters, and read more about each of these headlines, as well as other topics we cover each week. Now as I said at the top of the program, we're going to focus this week on the devastating impact of Hurricane Matthew on our state and our schools. 
We visited Robinson County and Lumberton Junior High School this past week where we sat down with Robinson School Superintendent Tommy Lowry and West Lumberton Elementary School Principal Tara Bullard. Take a look. Education Matters went to Robinson County this week to talk about Hurricane Matthew and the impact of the floods on the schools. Robinson County was one of the hardest hit areas in North Carolina and the school system was the last one to completely open this week, but still dealing with a lot of issues. We're joined today by the superintendent of Robinson County Schools, Tommy Lowry. We also have with us Tara Bowler. Tara is the principal of West Lumberton Elementary School, which has actually been relocated to Lumberton Junior High School, which is where we're filming today. Superintendent Lowry, tell me a little bit about um, as, the, as the floodwaters were rising. You obviously left the district office on Friday afternoon knowing something was going to happen, but uh, no one really saw um, you know, what we ended up uh, having to deal with here in uh, Robinson County. Uh, like I said, we first got a call uh, Saturday morning. Uh, we did go to command center uh, here in Lumberton to determine if, you know, how bad the damage was. At that point, not only just for the schools, but for the whole county, uh, later on that afternoon and that Sunday morning is when we realized that we were going to have a lot of flooding. Uh, we were having, uh, the waters were rising, and of course at that time, uh, you know, we were doing everything we can, first of all, to help with those folks that were evacuated, using our buses to help uh, those folks to get to shelters. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, we called the principals when we felt like it was safe for them to get out, to be able to get out to their schools and assess. At that time, we could not get into the central office and we could not get into West Lumberton. Uh, we tried to go in with boats and they stopped us because the water was just too fast for us to go in even with boats at that time. Right. And you're, of course, uh, you're dealing with, the, you've got all the schools, you've got, uh, what, 23,000 students? So you have families, but you've got teachers and principals who are also dealing with um, their own homes. So right. how, do you, how do you sort of communicate and how do you make those decisions on who can help and, and who needs help? Well, basically what we did is that we, uh, you know, call, contact the principals, and we just tell them you know, if it's safe for you to get out and check things at your school, you know, do that and whenever it's safe for you, you know, whether it's a day or two days. And most of our principals were able to get out and, and move around. We had a lot of road damage and it was very difficult for some of the principals to get out to their schools because they don't necessarily live in the same district that their, uh, their principals at. Right, Tara, what did you see? Um, you know, obviously you, you were experiencing it and, and knowing what was going on. What was happening at your school and, um, you know, how did you assess the, uh, the impact? Well, um, we were not able to access um, that part of Lumberton until um, Saturday, so almost a week had gone by before we were able to actually get in the building. Completely cut off? Yes, completely cut off. And I, I literally live um, like six minutes away from the school. So, um, you know, it was really difficult to know that I couldn't get to the school um, to assess any damages. Right. And uh, now once you're um, to the point you're, you're assessing damage, which was at least in, uh, for a week or more, uh, the school system was closed for three weeks. How do you determine, you know, what needs to be done first? Um, and how do you get kids back to school um, when you did? Well, one of the first things we did, uh, I uh, decided that we needed three departments to come back to work. You know, after we were receiving calls from our principals about damages and so forth, the first department was, of course, was our maintenance department, and then our finance department, and then, of course, technology. Uh, those were the three departments that I called in first. We got those in so we could start working on the damages and trying to assess the schools that we could get into and make sure that we started work on what we need to do there. Of course, our central office was flooded, and we went in there on boats to assess the damage there because the water still hadn't receded yet. Right. So what was the worst damage that you saw? I mean, it was, was it the, just the actual structural damage from the, from the flood waters? Uh, 
Probably so. Uh, you know, there's just so much devastation uh, when you go into a building and you see everything just upside down, just totally destroyed, completely wet, soaked. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty tough to, to go into those areas and try to, you know, clean up when, when there's already, you know, things already starting to, uh, to develop on, on those materials. Let's talk about the, um, the, the human impact a little bit. Um, elementary school, we're talking about the babies. Um, I mean, what's been going on with, with their families and with them? I mean, you, you, you and your teachers have been in touch with them. Yeah, we started contacting. I started a list, um, actually, the Monday after the hurricane hit that Saturday. We started um, just trying to contact parents through Facebook, um, telephones, any way that we knew, you know, to possibly contact parents just to make sure everybody was okay. Um, so we started that list, and then we continued. I continued having teachers call just to kind of keep, keep track of where people were located. Had several of my staff members who volunteered at shelters um, for several weeks until kids got back to school. Um, and it's still, um, we're still every day. We're learning some, you know, something new. We've had a lot of kids who um, have obviously been displaced. A lot of our families, actually, the majority of our families have been displaced. And um, you know, just with working with Mr. Tommy about. I'm trying to make sure that you know we're keeping all of our kids, um, you know, coming to the, the, the same place. Um, so that that was really important to us. Coming back to school, they would come back to the same faces, the same teachers, and and so um, it's been a successful week. It's been a it's been a smooth transition. So um, and we're we're hoping that we're going to get all of our kids back soon. Superintendent, uh, how does the school system support the families? You're, you're dealing with families here that uh, you know, many that may never be able to return or certainly won't be returning anytime soon. How do you uh, communicate and support the families? Well, you know, of course, going through our principals with our schools because you know, they have the contacts to be able to have teachers and everything to contact the kids and then, of course, talking with the parents. Uh, we do send out connect ed messages across the county uh, to try to communicate with our folks. Uh, we've tried to use the media also to help support getting information out to the students and everything and, and to their parents. It's been a very difficult time for, for all the folks here, but on the other hand, we've had a lot of support from people within the county and outside the county. Uh, tremendous outpour of support, whether it be materials, whether it be food, whatever it was the needs were. And of course, there were a lot of communities set up shelters, uh, food shelters for the parents to be able to, to go to those shelters. And we tried to communicate with the parents where those shelters were located at so they could go and, and get food, clothing, or whatever they might have at those shelters. So Tara, what's next? Uh, sort of I'm looking ahead I mean, what, to, to, there, what's normal um, going forward um, well right now I don't know that I don't know what normal is going to look like um, we're doing our best every day making sure those kids come to us and that we're providing um, them with everything that they possibly need whether it's you know book packs um, supplies uh, we're doing a needs assessment to send home to, you know to find out what the needs of the families are so you know we're taking things day by day and um, you know we're hoping that soon that there will be some sense of normalcy but obviously this has impacted them for a long time right well thank you both for joining us uh, today uh, and, and for the work you're doing on behalf of these kids I mean they're um, I know you're, you're personally affected yourself, um, but uh, like a lot of our educators, you're putting those children first, and we appreciate it. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. The school administrators and teachers and all the district staff did an outstanding job to get the schools back up and running. While normalcy is still a ways off, as you heard, for so many of these families, for many, returning to school was a huge first step. When we come back, we'll be joined by the state official who oversees public school facilities across North Carolina and a reporter who spent time in Princeville after the hurricane. 
As we go to break, see if you can answer this question. What was North Carolina's costliest hurricane? Welcome back to Education Matters. Did you guess Hurricane Floyd? Then you were right with $8.58 billion in damage. Right now, Matthew's estimate is $1.5 billion. Now, in the first segment, we heard from school leaders in Robinson County. Now, joining us to talk further is Dr. Ben Matthews. He's the Deputy Chief Financial Officer for the Department of Public Instruction. And we have Liz Bell, who is a researcher and reporter with Education NC, or Ed NC. So thank you both for being here. Thank you. Good to be here. Ben, I'm going to talk to you first. Um, in your role as a, uh, sort of overseeing really insurance and facilities for the Department of Public Instruction, give me a big picture about what uh, the impact was for uh, Hurricane Matthew on our schools. Thanks, Keith. Uh, the big picture, we had 19 school districts with 75 individual schools that had hurricane damage. And of those uh, 19 school districts, eight central office locations had damage as well. To the tune of a little over $9 million, $10 million, it, we're still working on the absolute numbers. So I, the number I'm giving you is not absolute at this point. But it ranged from um, a couple million of, at a school down to $50,000 at a location. Right. And so you asked, um, when we were talking before the show started, uh, your role was you sort of oversee the insurance for vast majority of the school system. Correct. So that's how that's why you have a sense. Is that how schools are going to get rebuilt? Is it is it largely through um, insurance coverage? Well, it will be. And in the case also in North Carolina, you know, we have a rainy day fund and the governor has a group together now looking at storm recovery. And we're working before I came here today, I talked to my insurance executive and we're making sure that the governor's office is very well aware. For example, Robinson County. Robinson County is definitely going to need some help above and beyond the insurance coverage that's available. So we're, we're making sure that the governor understands the need, and so there will be some state funding as well going back to support these schools. Right. Now, Liz, I want to um, ask you, I invited you on because I know um, you're a reporter uh, for EdNC, uh, EdNC.org, uh, did some really great coverage about Princeville and Edgecombe County. So we heard about Robinson County, but uh, tell me, well, first, uh, for, for viewers who don't know, what's the significance of, of, of Princeville? So, yes, um, Princeville is a very historic town. Many people have a deep sense of connection and pride in the place and in the community. Um, it was the first town to be fully incorporated by African Americans um, in the nation. And so for many, it um, would be heartbreaking to have to leave. Right. And I remember I was uh, back in 99, I was working at Progress Energy, now Duke Energy, when Hurricane Floyd happened. So Princeville made national news then. And, and sadly, you know, what you saw, you were there, what, a week after? And then when the floodwaters, which we've learned too much about flooding, it actually got the worst there, what, about eight days, 10 days after the, the storm? Right, right. Um, I actually was um, there that Friday after Hurricane Matthew hit, and um, at that point, Princeville was still completely blocked off and evacuated. Um, but I spent an entire day with a family um, who had just found out that they'd lost everything. Mm -hmm. um, they saw their neighborhood stand underwater um, on television. So yeah. that's how they found out. And although wow. they were able to grab a few belongings before they were evacuated, it wasn't much. And um, Sheila Cook, the mother of that family, 
told me that she didn't think she could bring herself back. She didn't think she could, yeah. you know, start got, over there. Yeah, we've got some photos that uh, were, were part of your story. We're going to pull those up on the screen now. But, uh, yeah, talk to me about uh, the, the, the families you talked to in the shelters. Yeah, um, so as I began to spend time with and talk to more people, especially in the shelters that were set up in Martin Millennium Academy and Tarboro High, um, I began to really understand how torn many residents were and are, um, residents who spent their entire lives in Princeville and to have families who've spent their entire lives in Princeville for generations. Um, I will never forget speaking with an older woman who was sitting on a cot in the gym floor of Tarboro High who um, had been through this just 17 short years ago right. and was just in disbelief that she was back here again, you know. Right. Um, so, and, and the question of whether or not to go back and rebuild in Princeville right. for her was, was a harder one. It was one she didn't have an answer to at that point. Right. And ben, ben, I think you probably had a little bit of deja vu yourself. I definitely um, did. It, it was a, I was there in 1999 uh, when the water breached the levee. The levee's about 35 to 36 feet tall. And the water rose there, the mo most, it was, the water rise was much more rapid in 99 than uh, this time. Mm. I was also in Princeville within three or four days after the storm in 99. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. The elementary school there was under about 12 feet of water, went all the way up to the ceiling. This time, thank goodness, the water was only about three or four feet deep. And we were able, that some of the lessons we've learned is to get in there and mitigate damage just as fast as you humanly yeah, can. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what else, yeah, what, what have yeah. we learned? Yeah, um, well, we've learned a lot. But, but to the point, on, still on Princeville, it was an amazing thing. This time, the water did not go over the top of the levee. It went downstream, and there was so much water that it backed up on the other side of the levees, which was totally unexpected. So that was a very strange occurrence. We learned a lot over the years. We've been dealing with this since the early 90s in, in my tenure. And uh, the one thing, we, one major, major thing we've learned is absolutely you must get in and mitigate humidity immediately because mold and mildew truly can totally destroy a structure, and we've had that happen. Um, and so we work, one of the things we do in our insurance group is to be sure that we provide information and support to the LEAs, the school districts, to understand the importance of getting into that school right away. And we hook them up with insurance um, uh, engineering groups who can help them and give them guidance, these uh, uh, after disaster groups to help them understand and also the reputable uh, after disaster groups as well. Right now, Liz, uh, Liz I was kind of struck uh, the, the, the comment that Tara Bullard made in the uh, interview in Lumberton when she said, I'm not sure what normal looks like. Uh, is that, right. uh, that's probably what the same thing you heard in, in Princeville. Absolutely, I mean, I think that although there are still, you know, difficult questions to be answered by individuals and by the entire community as they move forward, um, I have been so inspired by the resiliency of the community. Um, so many people in their different roles, from school leaders to community members to parents, have really come together to lift each other up in this hard time. And I think a true testament to that community effort has been the fact that Principal Elementary students um, who lost their entire school building um, were back in school in such a short time frame. And, you know, the effort that so many people and the dedication um, that they showed has been amazing to witness. Now, you mentioned being back in school and how quickly they came on. And that's one question that we've been hearing about, uh, Ben, is the uh, is makeup days. Uh, it's actually state law about how many hours and how many days kids have to go. Um, yes. What's the plan there? Well, that's an interesting, good question. We had 48 school districts during the tenure of the storm uh, after October the 8th. The following week, 
uh, and weeks afterwards, a range from one to 17 days were missed in those 48 school districts. Right. Currently, the law is very, very clear. Days have to be made up. There's no question about it. There is no forgiveness. The State Board of Education has no authority. It's statutory that the days must be made up. So it'll have to, it'll have to be done by the legislature. The legislature is the one who has the authority to very change good. that. Well, we're gonna, well, thank you both for being here. A lot of good information. We're going to be putting more information on the screen. Stick around. When we come back, this week's Leadership Spotlight. Each week, Education Matters spotlights individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education in North Carolina based on nominations from you, our viewers. This week, we're going to Chatham County to meet Taylor Portress, a third grade teacher at Perry Harrison Elementary School in Pittsburgh. She utilizes what she calls a flex classroom approach to teaching that focuses on collaboration. Take a look. Leadership Spotlight is presented by the Burroughs Welcome Fund. Advancing biomedical science by supporting research and education. Okay, so my name is Taylor Poitras and I'm a third grade teacher at Perry Harrison Elementary School. And this is my unique and exciting classroom where we learn a lot about learning styles and collaboration and critical thinking. I think that I've been a driving force in being able to use the idea of a collaborative classroom and to establish community within my students. I think that by the end of the year, they all feel like they have at least 23 best friends. And that's pretty powerful when you know that there are that many people that care for you and that you've been a part of that relationship. And collaborating and working together helps us to understand that you are strong and that you have many strengths, but there are many other people who are strong and that together we really can have a higher sense of achievement. And that collaboration and community at the end of the day is what brings joy into the classroom. And joy is one of the motivating factors that's really hard to establish. So once we can have a student that wants to come to school and they want to learn and they can't wait to get into the classroom, we've already kind of overcome a huge obstacle and now they're ready to learn. If you know someone who deserves to be recognized, visit our website, ncforum.org, click Education Matters, and you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. This week we completed a rancorous and at times very divisive election. But at the same time, we also saw how North Carolinians come together and help their neighbors in times of crisis. We witnessed entire communities, churches, nonprofits, business, and federal and state and local governments all working together to help those affected by Hurricane Matthew. While visiting Lumberton, one of the many things that stuck with me was how so many children's entire world had been turned upside down. When schools reopened after three weeks, about 10% of the students didn't return. That's because their homes and apartment communities were gone or condemned, and their families were either in shelters in neighboring counties, including South Carolina, or have moved in with family or friends in other towns to start completely over. It's kind of hard to fathom. We heard about the show uh, and about how many other communities across East North Carolina are still recovering and need your help. The North Carolina Disaster Relief Fund for Hurricane Matthew supports long-term recovery efforts to repair and rebuild homes damaged or destroyed in Central and Eastern North Carolina. The state of North Carolina activated this fund in partnership with the United Way of North Carolina. There are two easy ways to contribute. You can go to the website 
or you can text at NC Recovers to 30306 or visit ncdisasterrelief.org. This is one of the best ways to help fund long-term recovery efforts. That's it for Education Matters this week. Please come back and see us next week when we'll talk election 2016 and what it might mean for education policy in North Carolina. Thanks for watching.